Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2, and we'll begin reading there in verse 15. And if you would stand with me, if you can, and are able, as we uh, read together. Genesis chapter 2, beginning to read there in verse uh, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then jump down to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it, from its fruit, and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word. And I'm grateful, Lord, that we can come um, and freely worship in this country. country. I'm grateful, Lord, that we can come and freely learn from your word and stay what we believe to be true. And so it's a great freedom we have, and we, we take that privilege uh, with seriousness and uh, with great responsibility as well, because we want to be the kind of people who not only have the freedom to learn from your word, but we take advantage of it. And so this morning, that's what we're doing. We want to learn from your word. And so I pray, God, you'd help me to get out of the way and your word would come to the front. And I pray, Lord, you'd transform our thinking and transform our behavior. Because your word was not meant to just change our thinking and the way that we think or perceive things. Your word was meant to transform our character. So, Lord, we submit to your word this morning because it is your truth from your word that we believe. And so, Lord, help us now as we engage in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Super great to, uh, to be with you. Um, bring greetings from uh, Pine Ridge Church, obviously. And uh, I don't know about you, but the sick bug has been absolutely lambasting us. And uh, it looks like it hasn't hit you all, or maybe it was last week or the week before it hit you all, but uh, you all look great. <laughs> but uh, certainly glad to be here. Uh, Andrew is, is, of course, uh, swapping with me up in Pine Ridge. And I know what he's preaching up there. I'm kind of sorry I'm missing it. And I know what he's preaching. And I know that he's going to be delivering it here. So you can anticipate that. But I'm super glad to be here uh, with you this morning. And uh, taking a look at the birthplace of sin in Genesis. This is where sin uh, all started. <clears throat> and if I were to ask you, and this is, this is you to be participating with me here. But if I were to ask you, uh, the everyday person that you bump shoulders with in the marketplace of life. If, uh, if you were trying to help them understand Christianity or saying something to them about Christianity, and you were asking this question, uh, what is sin? What is sin to you? What, would they, what, what do you think the average person out there might say sin is? What would they say? Being a drunkard. Being a drunkard, okay. Lying. Lying, yeah. Murder. Murder, yeah. What else? Wronging someone. Let's say again. Wronging 
Wronging, wronging someone, yeah. Unforgiveness. Stealing, yeah. So if they'd say, okay, so how to live like a Christian, what would they say? What did they what would you think they think it means to live like a Christian? If you're gonna live like a Christian, what would that be? Good works. Good works? Perfection. Perfection. Goody two shoes. Goody two shoes. Yeah. What's that? That would be a great response if they said that. Yeah, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the interesting thing about when we talk with uh, the everyday person in the marketplace of life, they talk about rules. They talk about rules and regulations, what you can do, what you're supposed to do, and more importantly, what you're not supposed to do. So if I were to switch it now to you and ask you this question, for those of you who grew up in a, in a, a decent a Christian home, how many of you grew up in a, in a Christian home that you would say, okay, so for those of you who grew up in a Christian home, uh, what would you say it was like uh, to live as a son or a daughter in that family? What was it like to live in that family? Just, what was it like? Religious. It was religious. Okay. There's, there's peace and joy and love, yeah. What was it like to, to grow up in a Christian home? What's that? Say again. Like failures, then repentance. Failures, then repentance. Yeah. What was the family unit like in the Christian home? Mom and dad were always there. Mom and dad were always there. Yeah. Yeah. Devoted. Once again. Devoted. Devoted. Yeah. So the difference between if we were to talk to the regular person on the market in the marketplace of life, what Christian, what they think Christianity is, or what sin is. They'd probably talk about the do's and don'ts. And if you talk about somebody who actually lives inside of a family, what's it like to be a part of that Christian family? They would probably talk in some kind of relational terms, some kind of ways in which we relate to mom and dad, they relate to us, there's peace and joy, there is, there is love and affection. This is a difference between what the world understands Christianity to be and what the church understands Christianity to be and what the Bible says. The Bible talks about it being a part of a family. And being a part of a family, we talk in relational type terms, what it's like to be in that family. For the most part, <clears throat> the people out there in the marketplace of life, they'll say to be a Christian, it's about rules. It's about what you do and what you don't do. And yet we know from the Bible when Jesus taught us to pray, what were the first words he said? When, you, when he's teaching his disciples to pray and he, and he starts off the Lord's Prayer, what are the first two words? Our Father. He wants us to understand him in relational terms. This is not about do's and don'ts. You'll want to first of all understand what it's like to be in relational terms. I would venture to say to you that the vast majority of people you'll talk to in the marketplace of life, they will not talk about it in relational terms. And that's exactly the way that we're supposed to understand it. So we need to take the definition essentially from Genesis chapter 2. The Genesis 2 definition of who God is and what it's like to be related to him, not the Genesis chapter 3 and the one that the serpent is portraying there. It's about restrictions. It's about the restrictive nature of God. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But first of all, let's go to Genesis 2 and talk about what it was like for God to be in relationship with humanity. Genesis 2 there, I want to read it again in verse, verses 15 to 17 to give you an idea as to what was going on. The Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will die. As we pick it up here, God is in a good relationship with Adam. Adam is in a good relationship with God. God had created him. 
they were relational. Uh, then it actually says, uh, back in verse 8, it says that God actually planted a garden for him. Did you know that? That God, not only this is six days that he worked, one of those as, as he is working in front of Adam, he actually creates uh, and plants a garden for him. So he plants a garden for him, and uh, he let Adam care for it. Let Adam care for it, and then he's got these incredible fruit trees. You can eat from any of them that you'd like. Uh, then God uh, made a bunch of animals. And after he made the animals, he said, I'll tell you what, Adam, I'm going to let you name them. Whatever name you come up with, that'll be the names of the animals. Gives them this privilege and responsibility. And as Adam begins naming them, God doesn't say, oh, that's not a very good name. No, no. Any animals named that he came up with, those are the names. So they're, they're kind of relating back and forth here. And even though Adam or God created the animals, he said, Adam, it's going to be up to you. I want you to name them. And he's participating there with Adam. Then, of course, Adam was lonely and he fixed it. He fixed his isolation by creating another human being, the woman. And so things between God and humanity were good. They were really good. And as with all relationships, there are relational obligations to maintain those relationships. So if you were to say to me, uh, if I were to say to you, I can tell you that I definitely really love my wife. And you'd say, how? How can you show me that? I'd say, I've got this document in my office, and it, it's, it says in there that I'm married to Jody. This is when it happened in 1993, on June 19th. And uh, so you'll be able to see that I definitely love her because I've got this document. Now, we've been married for almost 30 years. Now, if I gave you that document and say, this proves that I love her, would you believe me? No, it's not about a document. You'd say, let me see how you relate to her. Let me see how you function with her. So you want to come into my house for a while and, and hang out with me and see whether or not there actually is a connection there. So with God, it's the very same thing. When we are connected with God, it's not about a document. It's about a relationship. And so um, things with God and humanity were actually uh, quite good. But again, there are relational obligations to maintain those relationships. So with Jody, my wife and I, there are ways that we relate to one another that are necessary to maintain that relationship. Just as there are with friendships. There are ways in which you relate with one another that are necessary to maintain that relationship. This is exactly the same with God. He was in a relationship with Adam. But there's ways in which Adam was to relate with God that would maintain that relationship. And so in this incredible environment God had made for Adam and Eve, the Lord had some things he desired in order for them to be a part of that relationship and things that he didn't desire. Eat any of the fruit that you want, hang out. Uh, the animals, this garden I planted is really crazy good. Uh, but here's the one thing, don't eat from that tree over there. So there are relational obligations, things you do and things you don't do to maintain that relationship, not to establish the relationship, but to maintain that relationship. Um, this is the God that they knew. This is the God that they knew and the one that they uh, had personally um, uh, come to know over, I don't know how long of a period of time, but a God who created them, somehow he's intimately connected with them. Uh, he he uh, he wanted uh, Adam to name the animals, did that, he was lowly, he created Eve, and everything seemed to be going well relationally. But there are some things that God said you need to do in order to maintain that relationship. The serpent in Genesis chapter 3, he wanted to present a different God. And if, and if he got Eve and Adam to buy into this different God, then, he, then he'll have them. And so we pick it up there in verse 5 of chapter 3. It says there, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
You can be wise, but he's not letting you. That tree is all about what God's not letting you do. Here's the thing. You can have an elevated moral independence. You can have your own moral independence. You don't have to have God telling you what you can and can't do. You can know for yourself what is right and wrong. You won't need God to tell you anymore. And so we have the root of sin. Believing that your way is better than God's. Believing that your way is better than God's. And we find this definition of sin all throughout the Bible. So if you can, and you know these passages, and you know these scriptures, I want you to fill in the end of this. In the book of Judges, it says this. Everyone, what was, everyone was doing right in their, in their own eyes. That's the definition of sin there in Judges. Everybody's doing what's right in what they thought was right. Or take Proverbs chapter 14 and 12 and 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to, the, to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right to me. It seems right that I ought to live this way, but in the end it leads to death. When we come up with our own moral independent judgment, we think it's right. We believe it to be right, but in the end it leads to death because we need to submit to God's way. Or how about Isaiah 53 and verse 6? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The definition of sin all throughout the scripture is all about me. It's all about my moral independent judgment and it started right here back in Genesis chapter three. You can know for yourself. You don't need God to tell you what's right and what's wrong. You can know for yourself. All you gotta do is eat that fruit. A number of years ago, uh, I was with a lady on a plane. She was sitting beside me, and we were coming back from Toronto, and when you're on a plane, you can't really go anywhere. And so, you know, you start up a conversation, and now what are they gonna do? They're not gonna go anywhere. It's kind of the same with hitchhiking. Anybody ever pick up hitchhikers back in the day? There we go. So you just all dated yourself along with me. But uh, I used to pick up hitchhikers too, and once they got my vehicle, I had to go, well, I'll talk to them about Jesus. Where are they gonna go? And so I'd have this audience with them, depending on how, they were, how far they were going, and we would talk about the Lord. This is the same with this lady on the plane. She was sitting beside me, and she was actually sandwiched between myself and another colleague, uh, uh, a Christian colleague of mine. And so as we're sitting there, she ended up in the middle seat, and uh, we began to strike up a conversation. And she said that uh, she came from a, a kind of a Christian home, but she didn't believe any of that stuff. I said, oh, well, tell me a little bit about it. So she told me about her life growing up in a Christian home, and it wasn't a great example at all. And her mom had some views and ideas that were quite whacked. And she said, so I don't believe any of that stuff, don't believe in the Bible or any of that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, we got some time here. Would you mind if I gave it a shot? She said, sure. And I said, well, let, let, let me start off with this. Like, so you don't believe in the Bible and, and God and stuff. So why don't you tell me, like, your understanding of right and wrong? So, so where do you, you kind of get that understanding from? And so she began to explain to me some bits and pieces of where she got it from. And she was heading a little bit towards society. And I said, so, so you get some of your understanding of right and wrong from society. She said, yeah, right. I said, do you think that it's the Canadian society that's right? Because certainly we disagree from another society like Iran or North Korea. She says, well, yeah, we do disagree. But I, no, I don't know if the Canadian one is the only one. Uh, and that's the one that's right. I said, okay, so it's not necessarily just from society. I said, so maybe where else would you have gotten your, your understanding of right and wrong? She said, well, probably from my upbringing. I did get some stuff there. I said, oh, okay. So would you agree with everything that your mom and dad would say is true and right and wrong? She said, no. 
I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe where else would you get it from? She goes, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I evaluate myself some stuff. And I said, okay, yes. I said, that's, that's fair too. Then I said, no, and I wasn't being, you know, condescending or anything. This is just a conversation. I said, so, you know, I, I know that you wouldn't say that you're the person who's got it right. The only person who's got it right in this planet, though, right? She said, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I said, okay, so, so you've got some understanding from society, some from your parents, and some from yourself, but in all of those, you wouldn't say one actually has the angle on it. She says, no, no, I wouldn't. So I said, so in the end then, so it, it seems a little bit to me like, like at the end, you're making a judgment call on society, on parents, and on yourself as to what ends up being right and wrong. She says, yeah, that's, you know, that's fair. I said, okay, well, let me give you an alternative to that um, that I think is at least as reasonable as that. And I think the Bible would be reasonable. Guinness Book of World Records is the most well-read book, well-sold book. More, more Bibles are sold than any other book in the world. So okay, so let's go on that pathway. So we went down that pathway for a while. But my point is this, is, and this is the conversation that I would have with any secular person if we have these conversations. And they're not, we're not talking confrontive. They're just, I just want to understand where they get right and wrong from. Eventually they lead themselves into a hole and eventually it comes back to me. It comes back to themselves. I don't want to then expose and say, see, you think you're right? No, not, that's not my point. My point is just to say, okay, now let me show you the Bible. But here's the point. Humanity, in the end, will believe that they actually have it right. They, in and of themselves, have it right. This is where it all began back in Genesis chapter 3. You can know for yourself. And then all throughout the scriptures, it's the same definition of sin. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. That is, the, that is the essence and the nature of sin, that I am right, and this is the essence of the temptation. You can know for yourself. You don't have to know from this God who's out there. Independent moral judgment can be yours and yours alone. Now, whether or not when we say, if we say it or not, when we sin, we really believe that we know better. We know better than God and his plan for our lives. That's why it damages our relationship with him, because we're essentially telling him, I know better than you. I don't trust your plan. Uh, I don't trust your plan has your best and my best interest in mind, and so I'll take it from here, God, and I'll go after what I think is attractive and right. Just like our kids, when they disobey us, they believe that their way is better than ours. And it's our job, through a variety of means, to help them understand that we actually do have their best interest in mind. But kids don't believe that. They don't believe that because the Bible says they are foolish. And so what do little kids know about their parents? They know that somehow, from right when they're created, somehow I'm connected to this, this man and woman. I'm connected to them somehow, and then you grow up underneath them. Then they've got these standards of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. And when they reject our standards, it's because they believe we are being restrictive. Kids believe that we are being restrictive. They want to do something and we're holding them back. We're telling them, no, you can't do that. We're being restrictive. But the standards that parents set up for the kids to live by generally, generally stems from their love for them. I'm doing a, uh, a parenting class in our church these days. We're just getting together once a month with the parents of young kids and they come over to my place and I think it's about five or six families <clears throat> and uh, just the parents, not the kids. And so we're talking about what does the Bible say about parenting? And the key, to, the key to parenting, right off the bat, is this. First of all, you've got to show them self-sacrificial love. You've got to show them that you love them. You've got to show them that you love them in their context, on their terms. 
And when I mean but on their terms, not in their selfish way, but in terms of their likes and their dislikes. And so if they like something and they see mommy, they don't see mommy ever playing with dolls before, but now she's playing with dolls because I like to play with dolls. The kid gets the idea that they're doing this because of me. Same with trucks. Same with anything. When you go in and you sit down with the child. In fact, this last week, I went over to a friend of mine's place, a pastor friend of mine, and he was uh, wanting to know, but he's, he's heard about this biblical parenting stuff. I said, sure, I'll come over. And so I went over there and, uh, and I was telling him about this notion You've got to show self-sacrificial love to the kids first, on their terms. You go into their world, just like Jesus came into our world, that shows incredible love for us. He took on human flesh, so we need to go into our kids' worlds to show them that we actually love them. Anyway, so as we're there, um, they had a, a fireman truck, a, a truck of, uh, sorry, a book of uh, fire trucks, and uh, they said to the little girl, hey, do you, want, do, you want, do you want him to read it for you? And she said, and so as I'm talking to the little kid's not, not even two yet. And I said, hey, and so she put the book on the table, so I took the book. Now I was sitting up in a chair at that point. And so what I did is I then I sat on the ground where the little, little girl was on the other side in the protection of her, of her mom. And as I'm, as I'm opening up the book, I said this to mom and dad. I said, now watch this. She may actually come over because I'm now reading the book. She may actually come over and, and want to read this book with me, but I don't know. So I'm looking at this book and I start talking about this fire truck. And as I'm talking about these fire truck, turn the pages, what happens? The little girl starts moving around. And she comes over, and before long, she's right beside me. And we're going through, we're going through this fire truck. And I was, as I'm doing this, I'm also talking to mom and dad. She doesn't understand all English because she's just a little girl. But the point is, going into her world, she says, this guy, now it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but I give this challenge to parents all the time. Uh, you just need to go into the world. And I'd say it to you parents, if you're wanting to connect with other kids, you want to connect with other kids in this church? Go into their world. They like tobogganing, go toboggan with them. They like throwing snowballs, throw snowballs. They like playing with trucks, go play with trucks and go onto the ground and be with them. Generally speaking, if you're not imposing yourself on them, but just going into the world, they'll accept you. It's exactly what God did. It's what God did for us, especially through Jesus Christ. But going into the world, so we show them that we love them. What God did at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and he did this. He planted a garden for them. He hung out with them. Adam, you can name all the animals. There's incredible fruit trees all over the place. You can have as many as you want. Are you feeling lonely? Here's an incredible, another human being I'm going to create for you. And he's doing all of this as love for them. But when the temptation came to say that, you know, out of, yeah, sure, he likes you, sure, he likes it, but I'm not going to focus in on that. What does the devil focus in on? What does the serpent focus in on? He focuses in on the restrictive nature of God. If you're taking notes, there's some, there's some really two great passages, uh, two great, great verses that talks about why God gives us commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 13, he says, I'm giving you these commands for your own good. I'm doing this for your good. When we do the biblical parenting class, I ask them to come up with a list of things of how they want their kids to operate, how they want their kids to function around mealtimes, bedtimes, how they want them to function with other friends, etc., etc. how to greet other people, and say, write out the list of how you would like them to be. There's almost never an item on any one of the parents' lists that I've got that I haven't liked. Because they're wise. Women, uh, men and women, moms and dads, they start off from a place of wisdom. Kids start off from a place of foolishness. I said, if I look at this list and I go, man, if your kid ends up like this that you just put on the sheet, you're going to have a brilliant kid. Now, they've got different preferences and different lists, but I'm telling you, the, the list that the parents come up with are good. And if I were to give you the same, li same list, you'd come up with the same great things. 
Because you have the best interests of your kids in mind. And this is the same with God. He had our best interests in mind, and so he set us up for success. Deuteronomy 10.13, I'm giving you these commands for your good. This isn't about me. This isn't about making everything restrictive for you. It's actually going to go better for you. Isaiah 48 and verse 18 says the same thing. If only you would have gone after my ways, then your well-being would have been incredible. And he goes on in Isaiah chapter 48. God gave us these commands for our own good. That's what he's doing with Adam and Eve as well. He only asks us that we trust him. The same thing that we ask our kids, to trust us. And that trust level happens when we can go into their world and show them that we love them in their context. And when we do that, the kid, the kid will understand we love them. If you don't, and you just have a bunch of rules and commands, then you're a dictator. You're a parental dictator. You have this self-sacrificial love. I want to come into your world first. Then you'll, your kids will understand, oh, they appreciate me. They actually want to come into my world. So they must love me. Then when you give commands out of that, the kid's got some trust level there. This is what should have happened with Adam and Eve. Everything that God had done to set them up for success. But the big temptation is, <clears throat> you can have your own independent moral thinking on this. You don't need God. But don't you dare, as the devil, the serpent is focusing in, he doesn't focus in on anything that God had done for them. He only focuses in on one thing, the restrictive nature of God. And so they were to trust God and his goodness above any other option, to trust his good character, but it all went sour when the serpent showed up in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It says there, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. Now, I'm going to make a few quick comments on this, um, and if you want to talk about it more in the dialogue, we can do that. But I want to talk about um, snakes and animals that can speak. Um, we probably need to talk about this, but I'm going to do it just briefly, okay? Um, so, um, is this apocalyptic language? I know that you guys have gone through Revelation. Is this apocalyptic language in Genesis? No. Uh, is this some kind of metaphor? Or is this kind of some kind of parable? Or, or is this literal? So here's a, a quick few comments. Again, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, we find that demons can actually inhabit animals. And they can do that. So demons can go and they can inhabit animals. We also find from the Gospels that demons can take over vocal cords. So demons can inhabit animals and they can also take over their vocal cords. Then in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, we find that Satan is the serpent of old. It doesn't say that the serpent is, it doesn't say that Satan is like the serpent of old. It says that Satan is the serpent of old in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 2. So is this beast that we're just read about in chapter 3 and verse 1, is this the devil? Or is it an animal? Or is it some kind of combination? What do we got going on here? As you can probably gather, I believe this text to be literal. And I believe, therefore, that demons who can inhabit animals can overtake their vocal cords and speak. Now, if you want to get into this a little bit more in the dialogue, we can. Um, I prefer not to talk about that much, and I prefer a private conversation here. But if you want to talk about the dialogue, we can do that. But I just thought I'd just make a few comments on that before we continue on. Okay, back to the temptation. So the serpent starts off by calling God into question. Has God really said? Has he really said? What's the, what's the devil doing here? He's already um, putting God, and he's moving God into this restrictive nature. He's putting God into this restrictive nature. Has he really said? 
And on purpose, he, he kind of is, is really exaggerating God's restrictions to draw attention to it. It's kind of like a, like a teenager. A teenager who says, well, I can't go out tonight. I can't, like, I'm not allowed to go out tonight. And their friends say, well, your parents never let you go out. No, they're exaggerating it. They're exaggerating the negative to focus on what? The restrictive nature of those parents of yours. They're very restrictive. And Satan is careful not to contradict God yet. He just wants them to focus on the restrictive nature of God. He's not caring. Don't focus on the caring aspect. Don't focus on, don't focus on the provisional, relational care that God actually has done. None of that. Just on his restrictive nature. Now Eve does a pretty good job to begin with. Um, but then she goes off script. And we pick this up in verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the tr fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Where did the touch it come from? Well, Satan had already, serpent had already kind of put this, this, this bug in her ear about a little bit of the restrictive nature, and now she grabs it and goes a little bit further. That's never in the text. It's never what God ever told Adam and Eve, that you can't touch it, you can't eat it. So it's kind of like, okay, she's going down my pathway here. It's kind of like, again, uh, going back to the teenager. Well, I'm not allowed out by my parents. Um, I, I am allowed out by my parents, but just not when I like to. Well, that's overstating the case. I mean, you're never allowed to do anything. Well, no, now that they've got you a bit, now, now you're moving your allegiance away from your parents, and now maybe you start contemplating as a teenager, well, what do we want to do? What do we want to do that might be against what my mom and dad want me to do? Once they've got you thinking about your parents, not in the loving, not in the caring, not in that role, but in the restrictive nature. So the serpent therefore now sees the opportunity from Eve's response, and he goes for the jugular in verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. A direct contradiction. You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He goes for it. Hearing that Eve is now contemplating the restrictive nature of God, he sets the temptation and directly contradicts God's word. So I'd suggest to you there are really three parts to this temptation. Um, first of all, you will know good and evil. I've said this already, but it's independent moral judgment. You can have independent moral judgment, just like this woman on the plane, and like all secular people, when I talk to them, wherever their standard of right and wrong is, generally speaking, it boils down to themselves. You can know what's right and wrong. Second part of the temptation is, you can actually be like God. You can be like Him. You don't need Him anymore. You can call the shots for yourself. And the third part of the temptation is he's really saying, you should give allegiance to yourself. You notice here he's not saying, you need to worship me. You need to worship me, the serpent, Satan, you need to worship, none of that. You go after yourself. You worship yourself. You can give allegiance to yourself. I'll come back to this in a few minutes. So Eve, who at this point is only thinking about the restrictive nature of God, now she's considering the alternative that's in front of her. And we pick it up there in verse uh, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband. There are three things that she's looking at here, and 
before I expand on those three, turn with me over to First uh, John. First John is uh, is almost at Revelation, so it's right near the end of your Bible. First John chapter two and verse sixteen. You'll find a staggering parallel to what the world offers us here in regards to sin. A staggering parallel between 1 John and what is actually going on in the garden. And this is talking about what the world offers us, what the world has to offer us. 1 John chapter 2, and let's actually start in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now listen to this. For all that is in the world, here we go, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, who's in charge of the world? The devil is. He's in charge of the world. And then we find the three things that are in the world that's supposed to, that, that is sedu seductive to us. We've got the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the eyes, when she saw that it was good for food, and it was, uh, no, good for food is the lust of the flesh, rather. The lust of the flesh, um, this is a separate sermon, but the lust of the flesh, so we, we, are, we are created with this wrapping, this flesh that, wrap, that is wrapped around us, and this flesh has cravings. It has cravings, it wants to laugh, it wants to eat, uh, it wants to have sex, it wants to do all kinds of things, and there's no check on those things. And the flesh just wants it. And so there's no, there's no evaluating. The flesh in and of itself has no evaluating factor. It just wants it and goes after it. And so it wants to feel good, wants to laugh, wants to be, we could talk alcohol, we could talk drugs, we could talk laughing at stupid, brutal things, it doesn't matter. We could talk about eating, eat whatever you want, as much as you want, there's no, there's no uh, uh, barometer on that, and have sex as much as you want. Your flesh just demands it and it wants it. So that's the lust of the flesh. So she says, it says here in verse uh, 6, she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. And it was delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise. That's the boastful pride of life. All the same things. The guy hasn't changed his tactics. He started in Genesis chapter 3, and it's now in the world. Those are the three same things that suck us in and seduce us into going after sin. And so what's going on with Eve now is she's already ruminating and thinking about the restrictive nature of God. And the alternative now looks better. And so she eats of it and she gives to her husband. Now I gave a sidebar on talking animals. I want to give a little sidebar on blaming Eve. I feel like oftentimes Eve gets a bad rap here. Uh, that is not what's going on in the text at all. Um, the conversation between the serpent and Eve was not a singular, it was actually plural. You go back into the Hebrew, it's plural. So when the serpent says, you will not die, he's not talking as an individual, it's plural. You will not die, you shall not eat, and when you eat of it, this is all plural. This is all plural. And Eve's response, you notice her response, from the fruit of the trees, we may eat. She's not talking of the, on herself. She says, we may eat, not me or I. And you'll notice that Eve actually doesn't tempt Adam. She doesn't tempt him. She simply, simply gives it to him, and he takes it. Um, so uh, without any challenge or without any question. So 
So if you want to give Eve a bad rap, you're not going to find it from the text. This is both of them. They're both complicit together. This is we, this is you, this is plural that's going on here. And it could be, some commentators have even suggested that he was even right there. Um, <coughs> we can't say that for certain. Here's what they should have done at that juncture point. Why not consider the temptation and talk about it? Why not consider the offer and the two of them talk about it? They're, that's the only community they had at that time. They were both godly people. Why not consider it and why not talk about it? This is where the community of believers, community of believers comes in for us to help us as well. And I'll come back to this in a minute. For now, I want you to consider the pathway to sin as we find it here. So this is, I'm going to propose something to you. This is not that I'm, I'm proposing you something good. I'm just saying that if I wanted you to go towards sin or somebody wants you to go towards sin, this would be the pathway that is a, as an effective way to get you there, and it's the pathway that Satan used uh, back in the garden. First of all, contemplate the restrictive nature of God. Don't think about his relational ones. Don't think about his love. Don't think about any of that. Only think about the restrictive nature of God. Um, where does this happen for us? This happens when we contemplate uh, morality with secular people. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. So we hang out with secular people all the time, that's what we're supposed to do. But when it, com when it comes to contemplating morality and truth, no, that's not where you go. And so she's already contemplating the restrictive nature of God, not his relational desires, surrounded by a self-sacrificial love in Jesus Christ. None of that. In Psalm 1 it says, Blessed is the man, blessed is the man, who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, you're not, you're not considering life and morality with those people. You're with them. The idea is, and the hope is that you're a light shining in a dark place, but you're not sitting around a table and talking about what life is in terms of good and bad and morality. When you contemplate morality with the secular world, you'll get sucked in. So first of all, she's contemplating the restrictive nature of God. Secondly, consider the alternative voiced by secular people. So now that you're, now that you're um, with secular people, you want to consider uh, what they're actually suggesting to you. This is what the serpent's doing. He's secular. So she's now considering it. This is where the focus is on the apparent benefits of the alternative. And for Eve, she's now talking with the serpent back and forth about it. So contemplate the restrictive nature of God. Then consider that, uh, all, then consider the alternative to it with secular people. Because secular people are not going to go uh, point you towards God's way. They're going to point you towards an alternative. Thirdly, if, they want, if, if somebody wants you to go towards sin, you meditate on that alternative. Start thinking about it. Start contemplating it. And certainly, do not go to uh, the Christian community. Don't do that. Just yourself, I want you to meditate it. And so you think, well, it's good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, it can make me wise. I don't know what part of the temptation there will be for you. And then finally, keep the, no, not finally yet, but keep the alternative away from godly people at all costs. Don't you dare talk about it with them. That's if I wanted you, if you want to go down a pathway of sin, this is what you do. And so she doesn't talk with Adam, who at this point with Eve, they're still both godly. And then finally, they embrace sin. That's the pathway towards it. Consider the restrictive nature of God. Don't think about his love, his care toward you. 
Think about it, talk about it with the secular community, think about the morality with them. Don't talk to the Christian community about it at all. And meditate on it. Meditate on the alternative and the restrictive nature of God. So I want to expand on this in a, for a few minutes um, when we get to the dialogue. But I want to give you an example of how this is happening with the issue of homosexuality in our culture and how the issue of homosexuality is creeping into the church. It's creeping into the church just like this pathway. So I, I'm not trying to pick on this sin. I'm, I'm just suggesting to you that this sin is making headway in many denominations. And uh, as far as I know, almost every denomination that I know of at this point is, dealing, is trying to deal with this issue. It's a very real issue, so I thought, why not uh, expand on this and talk about that in relation to what's going on here in Genesis 3. So let's go again to this pathways towards embracing sin. First of all, contemplate the restrictive nature of God, not his relational ones, not anything surrounded by a self-sacrificial love. So how does this work with homosexuality? God's restricting people from love. We just love. I'm not hurting anybody, and God's restricting me from that. I can't express my love towards another man, a man to man, or woman to woman. So already start contemplating the restrictive nature of God, but not thinking about his relational, not thinking about his self-sacrifice, none of that. Only think about his restrictive nature. Secondly, consider the alternative voiced by secular people. So now you're in their company and you're listening to what they're, what they're saying. And so maybe homosexual, homosexuality is about allowing people to express their romantic love. Happy couples, aren't there happy couples out there? And then contemplate it more and more with other secular people. But again, <clears throat> don't consider God's way. Ruminate on this alternative. Thirdly, meditate on it. Meditate and ruminate on it. That's, I kind of mentioned it in, in the second one. Homosexuality, who's, who am I hurting? Who are we hurting? We're not hurting anybody. And this is the only place I'm going to be able to find love. We are just innocent people. They're just innocent people looking for love. They're not hurting anybody. And why this restrictive nature of this God is not allowing us to do that. And then finally, if you want to keep people heading down this pathway in the Christian community, you keep that alternative from godly counselors. Don't talk to the Christian community about it. Spend more and more time listening to what the secular world is telling you, and the more you listen to it, the more you'll be sucked in. I'm telling you, this is, this is exactly what's happening in our churches. So it's happening in our denominations. This is, a, this is the, the methodology of bringing it in. It's the same methodology that the devil used before. Now, when people head down this pathway, and when they embrace it, it's because they've done exactly what the serpent wanted them to do way back in Genesis 3. Especially keep it from the Christian community. I had a conversation with somebody recently, a very loving dad, and his daughter is heading off into this, into this category. And she's considering the alternatives. And she has no Christian community to talk to. She doesn't want to talk to the Christian community about it. Thinking about the restrictive nature of God and on and on and on. And she's walking away from God. It's exactly what the devil wants. It's perfect. But you don't start off with saying God's wrong and you should reject God. You don't start there. That's not where you start. You've got to be cra if, if they're going to be crafty, there's going to be a different way in which they're going to bring it in. Once you believe that homosexuality is actually right, then what do you do with the rest of the Bible? God's got it wrong there. What else has he got wrong? And then you're in a whole heap of trouble. 
You see, the temptation crafted by the devil had, had very little to do with the fruit. It had very little to do with the fruit. Rather, he wanted them to get to the place of independent moral judgment instead of on that God who's restrictive. Instead of on that God who's restrictive. Again, this temptation is not about worshiping Satan. It's about worshiping self. You can know for yourself. And by the way, there's, this, um, there's also this movement happening in Christian circles uh, where uh, Christians are being exercised of the demons that are in them. Uh, I do not find this to be biblical at all. Uh, but the reason why it's very uh, seductive is because you can put the blame on the demons. You can put the blame on that. And you don't have to put the blame on yourself. But you notice here, the temptation is not to worship the devil. Temptation is to worship self. Temptation is to worship self. But it's attractive to put the blame on somebody else. But it's really all about us. The devil here, he's, he's not saying worship me. It's all about, I want you to worship yourself. I want you to get to the point where you actually believe that you've got it right and you have the capacity to get it right. The root of sin is going your way, not God's. Again, all of us like sheep have gone astray, every one of us. Each of us has turned to his own way. But it says in Isaiah 53, but God has caused the sin of all of us of turning to our own way. He's caused all of that sin to go on his back and he's paid for it all. And when we sin in this way, there's a separation between us and God. And after Adam and Eve sin, the text tells us that they go into hiding because they know there's something wrong now between them and God. And it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. When we sin, we don't want to talk to God about it. Isaiah 59:2, your sins have made a separation between you and God. Now, I thought of you know writing a conclusion out for you here, but I, I think I'm going to do the conclusion with the lessons behind me. So, Christianity is about a self-sacrificing, loving God whose instructions are rooted in our best interests, not a restrictive God keeping us from happiness. This is really important. And people, when they want to pull us away from God, they want, to, they want us to think about his restrictive nature. This is about a God who came to this world. I was talking to a man about this this last week. About, you know, so what did it look like for God to come here? He came into our world, into our context, and he took on human flesh. That's a God, and then when that God then chooses to die for us, and when he chooses to die for us, and now he wants us to do something, oh my goodness. That's a God who loves us. Can you think of a, you know, a situation, I can't think of a situation now, but maybe a situation where you're sacrificing, somebody's sacrificing their life for you, and just as they're about to die, they say, hey, can you do this one thing for me? Oh my goodness, you'd be like, of course. Because they show that self-sacrificial love for you. This is God, this is what we're supposed to meditate on. The self-sacrificial nature of a loving God who's got our best interests in mind, not a restrictive God keeping us from happiness. <clears throat> Secondly, here's the pathway to sin, as I mentioned in the sermon. Contemplate the restrictive nature of God, not his relational one. Consider morality only among secular people. That's where you go. Consider morality among secular people. Introspective meditation on the alternative to God's way. This is exactly what's going on with Eve. And finally, keep that alternative from godly counselors. That is the pathway to sin. You think about God as restricting you from some kind of happiness. Then you consider morality. You go into the community. It's the secular community. Then you think about it more in your head. This is exactly what Eve is doing. Thinking about it more in her head. And then finally making sure you don't talk to godly counselors. That's a pathway to sin. And then finally, 
Sin is about personal, independent moral judgment and allegiance to self. That's what sin's about. It's about personal, independent moral judgment and allegiance to self. Now, I've said enough, and uh, I, uh, sometimes I'm gifted and I can put a few people to sleep, but I haven't done that this morning, so I'm glad you stayed with me. Thank you for that. Um, but maybe you, have a, maybe you have a question or a comment, or um, maybe there's some things that I've missed in here. Uh, Andrew and I, when we talk about this, I, I quite often think that this is a time where some of the gifts of the, the Spirit actually come out in our church. Uh, words of wisdom and sometimes some uh, questions or comments or, or thoughts that you might have. What, uh, what are you all thinking?